Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 14 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q. I am Richard Kutcher and my guest co-host for the next 30 or so minutes is Skip Myers, partner at law firm Morris, Manning and Martin. Skip, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Are you a, are you a podcast person? Are you someone that engages with podcasts generally? Absolutely. I, I've converted to podcasts probably two years ago and... Uh, I listen to my favorite podcasts uh, usually when I'm walking my dog oh. or occasionally uh, at uh, I eat my, my, my lunch at my desk and uh, so a podcast is appropriate. Good to hear. This is the uh, second episode. We're recording entirely from the uh, VCIA annual conference in Burlington, Vermont, the week commencing the 5th of August. Our captive owner interview this week is with Melissa Hollingsworth, Director of Risk Management and Insurance at Jim Ellis Automotive Dealerships and our third guest this week is Pete Krantz, the captive practice leader at Beecher Carlson. Do not forget to subscribe to the Global Captive Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform of your choice to ensure every episode is downloaded straight to your device. Skip, it's a real honour to have you uh, join the podcast as one of my one of my go one of my co-hosts. Sorry, you've had quite the career uh, serving our industry, stretching back around thirty or so years. I remember visiting your office in Washington D.C. a couple of years ago, and I think you have a, is it a signed copy of the Liability Risk Retention Act framed on the wall? How were you how were you involved in that? How did that act end up on your wall? Well, that, that's very interesting because it, it's it's something that really uh, pushed me into the uh, insurance business, the legislative side, the regulatory side, and uh, that's what's called a red line copy of. Uh, the first page and the last page of a piece of legislation. And I got that because uh, I was involved in drafting the Liability Risk Retention Act. And uh, so I have the privilege now of having that red line copy, which is signed by uh, President Reagan and uh, Tip O'Neill, who was the speaker, and then uh, acting uh, President Pro Tem of the Senate. So I I was, at that point, I was uh, representing the National Association of Insurance Commissioners as their counsel in Washington. And uh, so that was a, you know, a a job that I had along with another fellow that has become uh, a lot more prominent politically, that is Terry McAuliffe, who became uh, governor of Virginia, head of the Democratic Party. And uh, our firm was sort of on the Republican side. Terry's was on the uh, Democratic side. So it was an interesting uh, engagement. And uh, Terry didn't work on the uh, LRRA, but uh, I did a lot of work on the LRA. It it was fascinating and a great introduction to uh, the captive business. Um, You know, the LRRA was Congress's answer to the liability crisis of the 80s, where uh, perhaps some of those who are listening to this podcast right now aren't aren't old enough to remember the the liability crisis of the 80s, but uh, it it was... uh, you know, the result of uh, an extremely hard market where uh, even even public entities couldn't get liability insurance. So Congress's answer was, as it, as it usually is, to pass something, and the something turned out to be the LRRA. And uh, from, from that point forward, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in the, in the captive business and now basically exclusively operate in the captive business. It's a very interesting piece of legislation because it's the only piece of federal legislation legislation passed by the Congress that that really interrupts uh, insurance regulation at the state level. So there's been a lot of pushback uh, from the states, and over the past 30 years, uh, I've been involved in that, uh, and those issues uh, on the side. Uh, I, I, I stopped working for the NEIC in 1987, so 
since that time I've been on the private sector side, and it's been uh, you know, a very interesting and engaging part of my uh, practice. So, so during those 30 years, uh, Skip, what do you say is the, the kind of the, the biggest changes, or what, how do you think the captive business has changed uh, in that time? It's changed a lot, actually. Um, you know, the first captives were offshore in the, in the 70s, and they were pure captives for the most part. Um, and then, then, then came group captives. Uh, but there were no onshore captives until the mid-'80s when um, Vermont and Colorado uh, adopted cap- state captive laws. And uh, Vermont got a, got a big pushback from the NEIC. Um, and it was, it was very interesting to see the whole dynamic of it because the uh, NEIC represents the, uh, or, or regulates uh, the states which regulate the uh, traditional industry. And so there wasn't, there wasn't uh, any support on the uh, NEIC side for uh, Vermont doing what it did. But uh, Vermont uh, pr- uh, pursued what it uh, wanted to do and uh, it fought it out with the NEIC and it, uh, it's, it remained, uh, you know, it became an accredited state. But the NEIC has the power to uh, really... Uh, twist the arms of the states, and in this case, Vermont uh, stayed strong. So uh, Vermont was the first significant state in the captive, uh, in the captive world, and, uh, and now, of course, there are 38 states or so that have some form of, of captive legislation. So captives have grown substantially, and, and you know, as they started out as single parent, and then uh, we now have group captives and cell captives and uh, risk retention groups and so on. So it's grown substantially, both onshore and offshore. And uh, what this does is creates competition among the different domiciles to evolve and uh, to do uh, interesting things, some of which turn out to be uh, good, some of which turn out to be bad. And, and uh, you know, then, then they, the market takes, takes its action and, you know, uh, supports the good and, and uh, eliminates the bad. On that topic of domicile proliferation, how do you see that? Is that do you see it as a positive or a negative? Well, I, I think I think on balance it's good, I, I be, and I'm a, I'm a big supporter of, of uh, competition as a, as a, as a way to determine uh, what should be what should be uh, in commerce and what shouldn't be. So uh, it's a combination of uh, creativity among the among the domiciles who are seeking the tax revenue and also the opportunity to get more business in their states. Uh, or uh, offshore jurisdictions. Uh, I think on balance it's good. I think there are some bad ideas that uh, come to fruition and then um, uh, cause problems. And uh, I think we're seeing sort of the, um, the lifespan of uh, micro-captives now. And micro-captives started out as you know, basically uh, ways to give the benefits of captive to smaller entities and then uh, what's worth doing is worth overdoing in the mind of some, and and so they were over, oversold as uh, as tax schemes. And uh, the IRS, of course, picked up on that. And and uh, now there have been several cases that have several legal cases that have uh, have sort of turned the turned the tide. And the IRS is uh, making it difficult for uh, micro captives. And uh, so as a result, I think you're going to see. Those states that took in a lot of micro-captives are going to be running them off. And, uh, of course, the, the regulators generally don't take the position on whether something is, you know, good from a tax perspective or not. They, they want to see that the captive is uh, solvent uh, or likely to be solvent. And um, so uh, it, it, the IRS, in this case, the Internal Revenue Service, has, uh, 
has done its job and uh, maybe maybe overdone it in a few cases. And uh, so this is going to be a problem uh, going forward for those entities. So it's going to change uh, some domiciles. They're going to lose a lot of captives. Uh, they're going to be uh, more lawsuits. Uh, and uh, there, there's going to be some pain and anguish, uh, but uh, that's what happens in a capitalist economy. So I think, I think it's for the good. Obviously, Vermont is a very successful domicile still, and it's got great, great expertise here and, and great history. And the regulators know know what they're doing. Is there still a role for these very specialist captive domiciles that are kind of captive hubs when when there's so many options for for captive owners to choose to be in their home state or to be anywhere almost in the United States? Well, um, that, that's a good question, and, and so you've got to wonder, you know, have are there now too many captive domiciles? So. Uh, States will continue to have a reputation for what they're capable in. For example, there are a handful of states uh, that, are, that are good to charter a risk retention group, which is one of the things that I do, do a lot of. Um, and you know, there are about six states that, uh, that know what they're doing, have the experience, and so on, and uh, will welcome a, a risk retention group. Um, other states may want to, you, you, you can charter uh, a risk retention group in a number of states, but you want to you select carefully. Same thing for pure captives, same thing for group captives. So you're going to have specialization, uh, and the market will decide which, which states those are, and that will depend upon the, basically the regulatory structure and the competence and experience of the regulators. So then looking back again on, the, on your 30 years, Skip, what are some of the more interesting or different types of captive structures that you have worked on in that time and, and that you're possibly allowed to talk about? Well, first of all, I'm allowed to talk about all of them because I don't do anything in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> so we're finding that cell captives are becoming more popular because the, uh, the entity that runs the, 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 the parent, you know, the, the PCC, the protected cell captive that has the individual cells, can provide uh, management services, uh, capitalization, and you know basically get things off it quickly. And uh, there's a real advantage to that for smaller companies because they can grow their captive in in this in a cell, and then when they get to a certain size, they can uh, they can just take it and and have their own individual captive if that's what they want. So I think PCCs are becoming more popular. Um, risk retention groups are uh, continuing to to do well, but a number of them are. Uh, merging because uh, the continued soft market uh, but if the market hardens then then things there, there will be more there'll be more uh, RRGs and there'll be more there'll be more captives now they may be cells to start out with uh, but there will be more because one of the things that captives do and one of the good things that they do is they create competition in the marketplace so for example uh, you know captives started out as being a way to, uh, you know, basically risk management exercises and to provide coverage to entities that had a hard time getting the coverage, you know, such as, uh, you know, dangerous activities like, uh, or activities that, that lead to claims such as uh, uh, drilling, mining, um, those kinds of things. And then it's expanded to all different kinds of uh, entities. And, uh, you know, the Fortune 100 companies largely have uh, captives. And, and, and why do they have them? Well, they have them because uh, they can they can enhance their ability to get uh, extra coverage, unusual coverage, and 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 also they provide. This is something that's not quite uh, understood by many. They provide competition. In other words, if uh, if the traditional company which they've been dealing with comes in with a uh, you know a pricing structure that's based upon its overall loss uh, ratio, it's probably higher 
than this company will want. So it, it, the company can say, well, look, we'll take the, you know, we'll take the first one million or the first two million, and then and then you then you can sit above that. And then it becomes a different uh, discussion altogether. Well, it's interesting that you touched on protected cell companies there because our first guest in this episode is Melissa Hollinsworth, Director of Risk Management and Insurance at Jim Ellis Automotive. Melissa is responsible for the protected cell company owned by the group in Washington, D.C. And she began by telling me about Jim Ellis and her role at the company. Jim Ellis Automotive Group is a family-run automotive dealership. We have 18 locations throughout the metro Atlanta area, and it was founded in 1971 by Jim and Billy Ellis. It's now run by their son, Jimmy Ellis. And uh, so we have 18 dealerships throughout the metro Atlanta area, and my role with the uh, dealerships is to manage the day-to-day operations of our captive which is Jelco Insurance Company, PCC. It's responsible for the buildings, the inventory, the people, the loss control, and the risk management of the dealership group. And so when, when was that captive formed and, and kind of what was the main rationale behind, behind having a captive? The captive was formed in August 2011, and the rationale was to get a better handle on our, our risk throughout the dealerships. It's you know, a lot of moving pieces, um, and we're in different areas of the metro Atlanta area, and uh, we needed to be able to get a real good handle on it and make sure that we were maximizing our resources, you know, as far as just making sure that we took care of the assets that we had. Um, And when I started, it wasn't 18 dealerships, but it's grown to that point, and the captive has grown right along with it. Right, and I presume it, it kind of facilitates that growth and helps the company to, to grow into, into new areas. And the captive mm-hmm. is domiciled in, in D.C., is that yeah, correct? That's correct, yeah. So um, how has the captive evolved and, and grown over the years that you've, you've been involved with it? Well, um, so we have a segregated sale captive structure, um, and so each of the uh, sales initially when I started uh, just about seven years ago, each sale took on a piece of the claims that came through, which includes workers' comp and property and casualty. And we had another sale that took care of our third-party warranty claims um, for our, our reinsurance products uh, for, the, for the vehicles that we sell. Now, uh, over the years, because of the activity and because of the way that the captive has grown, we have one sale that handles every single claim now. And it's just, it just makes more sense just because of the volume, the premium dollars that we deal with at this point. It's, it's continuously grown year after year after year where it just you know, moving it to one cell just made it easier and streamlined the financials, you know, especially with reporting to the regulators in D.C. Um, so that's the biggest thing, the biggest change that we've had, and we've added lines of risk, you know, over the years. We started with property and casualty, and we already had workers' comp, and we've added some additional third-party warranty, so it's just continuous growth. Great. And how then, obviously, the CAPS has been growing and evolving over the years and the structure's kind of slightly changed, but how do you review the, how do you take an internal view of kind of reviewing the CAPS's role and the value that it brings to the group? Is there, an, is there a kind of a formal exercise or are you just, are you just very confident that you, you know how, how it works for you? Mr. Ellis and I, we do our own, we have quarterly 
Um, we sit down quarterly anyway because we do our, our financials on a quarterly basis in conjunction with our captive manager, who is Beecher Carlson. So we sit down and look at that quarterly, and we also do it um, annually. We have a board meeting, of course, that we you know, have um, usually, you know, in the fall of every year, and we'll, you know, look at, you know, the, our claims and how they've, you know, kind of trended throughout the year and see maybe if there needs to be any adjustments or, or anything that we need to do to try to, you know, mitigate any type of issues we may be having, you know, that we see. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm fortunate because Mr. Ellis and I are able to talk openly and easily uh, on a daily basis if necessary about anything that may be going on so it's a constant review process is what I'm trying to say it's just you know it's something that you know he and I are, are always emailing and talking about um, and it's worked very well great and then looking ahead then to the future how do you see you've obviously the captive has grown and evolved and added new lines in the past so do you see new opportunities and areas for the captive to, to grow into in the future there are some things that i'd like to see especially on the medical side the benefit side i know that those are hot topics um in the industry right now um and that's something that uh, mr ellis and i you know have been and will continue to talk about you know as as we continue to grow and um, recently we added cyber to our problem yeah we've added cyber which has been an interesting change and you know that's the emerging market as we know and you know constantly evolving so we're, and we're always looking at different opportunities you know we we um, look at um, you know what the needs of the dealership group are and you know how we can plug in any any gaps or fill any holes that may be there and make sure that we're doing what we need to do our due diligence you know for the company on the, on the cyber uh, line was that a response because you felt the uh, kind of corporate market wasn't providing the the options that you needed or the coverage that you needed or so yes I mean because we do have our our excess carrier uh, through our broker Aon um, that does a really good job um, you know with everything we carry high deductibles on each of our lines of risk and that helps us keep our claims uh, activity under control and help us mitigate in-house as much as possible but we did get some um, uh, we, we did get some quotes back from the market, but the benefit of having the captive is we can structure it pretty much the, however we want to structure it as long as we get regulatory approval. And what we saw, you know, from the markets, we didn't feel like fit what we needed for our dealership group. So we structured it along with Beecher's help to be able to cover that risk because we previously didn't have coverage for that before. So, Skip, we heard from Melissa there uh, with the PCC that she runs, uh, Captain Domiciled in D.C., which is your own home state where you're based. Um, of course, you work with captives and the clients across multiple captive domiciles, as you've already mentioned. But would you be able to just enlighten our listeners on the kind of attributes and profile of uh, D.C. as a captive domicile? Oh, I'd be glad to. Um, captives in D.C. started uh, in, in 2000. Actually, the, the act was... Uh, in 2004, and uh, it has grown since then. It's it's a well-established ca captive domicile now, and uh, has some very interesting large captives uh, and uh, a smattering of different captives, and quite a few RRGs. It's it's a good domicile for uh, risk retention groups. Uh, it's a good domicile for uh, captives that have a good business plan and. Uh, are well managed and well capitalized. Uh, it, it's it's not a domicile that uh, uh, has done many uh, small captives. It's decided that it's uh, basically going to stick with the risk retention groups and the uh, 
and the larger captives. But I think it's quite a, quite a good domicile. The regulators are experienced and, uh, and they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing and they will tell you uh, this is a good idea or this is not a good idea. Yeah, it's great to have that, that knowledge, uh, Skip, because actually I've just, I've just realized really that of the 13 episodes, I think, that we've done uh, now, uh, we've had three captives from, from D.C. in there. We've had University of California. We had NASW Assurance Services in, in, in the episode 12 or 13. And now we've just had um, Jim Ellis uh, as well. So we've had a PCC, obviously University of California, have got an RRG and a PCC as well, and uh, NASW. So l- plenty about DC in the last few episodes. Well, that wraps us up for part one of this episode. In the second half, we will hear from Beecher Carlson's Pete Krantz, and I'll quiz skip on marijuana captives and a few other topics as well. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, Novations, Business Transfers and Acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. Welcome back to part two of the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Skip Myers from Morris, Manning and Martin. One topic that was high on the agenda during my last couple of years at Captive Review and continues to fill headlines today is the idea of marijuana or cannabis captives. That is, captives owned by and serving the needs of organizations involved in America's growing legalized uh, cannabis industry. Because of the complicated legal situation of the sale and use of cannabis across different states, however, the landscape for establishing such captives is definitely not straightforward. Skip, can you just explain to our listeners the background and why there is kind of a complicated legal situation uh, concerning the the marijuana business? Yes. uh, You know, it it is a very interesting it is a very interesting subject because the marijuana business is growing and it's growing because the number of states that, that are legalizing cannabis is growing so substantially. I mean, at first, of course, it was just uh, marijuana for medical use and then and it became uh, mar- marijuana for, you know, just uh, recreation and so on. And, and now I, I can't off the top of my head uh, think of the number of states, but it's in the 30s, I think, that have some form of uh, marijuana uh, legal law. And, and uh, Colorado was the first state to really go big time. But the, the problem with the, the, the insurance aspect, well, first of all, marijuana growers and, and marketers need insurance badly because you know, the, the, their, their, their product is valuable. Uh, they, they, as agriculture, as agriculture, they have some of the same problems that regular agriculture uh, growers have, like uh, you know, transportation issues and uh, uh, flood, you know, flood damage and uh, other other natural causes. But they also have the issue of um, they've been operating in the dark for so long that uh, a lot of the a lot of the deals are done in cash. So the question is, what do you do with that cash? Or uh, even if you got a check, if you if you determine that it, you know, if it can be determined, it's from the growth of marijuana. Question is, how do we know that it's in a, in a state where it's legal? And then uh, the banking law. Uh, while the marijuana laws at the state level might allow the growth of marijuana or the sale of marijuana under various circumstances, the federal law does not because it's a Schedule One substance. So, the federal banking laws 
intercede here, and it makes it very difficult to uh, operate and to have a bank and to use the banking system, which means that, again, you've got all this cash and you need you need to be able to do something with it, and uh, you got to store it, you got to transfer it, and uh, you know you got to pay tax with it. And so I know that some states actually have certain days where they will um, just basically have a place where people will come in and dump truckloads of cash, uh, you know, and they and that will be there, and they'll file an income tax return, and, and uh, that's how they do it. So it's really still uh, regulated in in an odd way, if if at all in some places, and uh, it makes it very difficult. So to, to, to set up an insurance company, and there are insurance companies that do provide uh, coverage, such as, you know, your standard coverages, such as, uh, you know, liability and, uh, you know, E&O and, uh, you know, uh, BOP coverage and so on. But, but you know, they're, they're really uh, on the fringe because you don't know whether the federal government is going to take an action that would put these people in a position of operating uh, illegally and, uh, you know, with a criminal enterprise because under federal law, that that may be the case. So uh, there's been a real stop gap for captives because, you know, you know that there are several states where captives are in the pipeline, but but they haven't been licensed yet because of this issue of... uh, violating the federal law. Now, there, there, is a, there is a bill in Congress to, to change that, to have a special exception for marijuana in terms of uh, uh, laws relating to uh, money laundering and, and um, operation of banks and so on. But, uh, and there, there was a, a memo that basically, uh, from the Justice Department, that basically said they would, uh, they would, they would not enforce the law if Certain circumstances were met, but the, then the Trump administration came in, and and uh, and the Attorney General Sessions said, "No, we're not going to follow that." And so it's still up in the air. But in the meantime, the marijuana business is burgeoning. You know, uh, there's lots of marijuana all over the place. So the question is, should you have a captive that would provide reinsurance or even in, insurance in in a, you know if you're in that state? And, and uh, the answer is it, it's difficult because you don't know whether you're going to be violating federal law. And, and the laws that you violate uh, take no prisoners. You know, these, yeah. these are money laundering and, uh, and uh, criminal enterprise laws, and uh, they're criminal penalties. So that's where we are. But I, something will happen because the industry keeps growing, and uh, states like California, uh, for example, and Colorado and so on, uh, you know, they're pushing for some kind of uh, regularization, if you will, of of this so that, um, you know, the people that grow the marijuana, for example, don't have to have guards on their trucks and, and uh, you can actually have a real tax return that actually states how much money you're making and so on. And so w- what will have to happen, do you think, for marijuana captures to really kick off? Is it the states just really are waiting for more direction and more freedom from the federal level? I, I, I think that's really, that's, that's, the real, that's the real threshold. Uh, may, maybe a state will come out and say, uh, we're just handling this in our state and and uh, our state laws don't uh, violate it, therefore we're not going to worry about the federal laws. But it hasn't happened yet, and it probably hasn't happened yet because nobody wants to be the first person uh, to say, you know, I'm thumbing my nose at the federal law. Yeah. Okay, well, interesting. Watch this space for sure. Um, our third guest of today is Pete Grants, captive practice leader at Beecher Carlson. Pete began by explaining where the practice currently sees new opportunities for captive formations. Interestingly, as far as the, our clients, I think I went through and counted, um, we have in excess of 25 of the Fortune 500 companies as captive clients right now. Um, where there's opportunity, uh, a, a lot of people 
think that the large account space, those largest organizations, have sort of tapped out in the market. Um, it's not entirely the case. Uh, we see some of those large organizations actually expanding their number of captives into different jurisdictions. Uh, so that's one. The middle market, which uh, we have seen, obviously, the in, in the small market space, we saw sort of the proliferation of the, the 831Bs, which um, unfortunately, they, they weren't always set up correctly. And that is actually coming down now. Um, I think I actually uh, was at Steve Kenyon on uh, podcast number three, I think, had mentioned sort of a, a decrease in Delaware or a decrease in some jurisdictions in the number of captives. That was primarily, I think, to the due to the abuses and the cut down of the, the 831B, the bogus 831B stuff. Which is good for the market. But that's which happened. is great for the market because we're cleaning that out and we're, we're left with the good stuff. Um, where there's uh, continued opportunity in the middle market and in the small market, um, more and more middle market entities um, are going to qualify, particularly on the higher end, or will uh, have a structure that a captive would be beneficial for. But we're also going to see it in aggregation. And we've seen this over a number of times. So there's a number of structures out there that are aggregating risk, but I think we're going to see more uh, rather than a manager or somebody having a product to sell and they're going into sort of a I come to you and I say, here's, here's the box, here's the product I want to sell you, and you come into it. It's going to be more through associations and through things like that, um, entities getting together and forming their own. And that'll, that'll continue to permeate through the, the small market and into the middle market. Great. And then in your existing uh, portfolio, how are you seeing, um, as I said, you've got some quite interesting and some quite complex captures. How are you starting to see them evolve, evolve and expand further? And, you know, for example, any particularly interesting new lines or products being put in, into those captives? Particularly for the, the, the large market captives, the larger account captives, there's, there's been an ongoing usage or utilization of those. We're into a hard market from the insurance perspective, so we're seeing increased utilization just from the traditional lines, the property, which typically isn't a big captive line, uh, and the casualty lines. Uh, we also have a, a significant practice around tenant liability programs in the multifamily space, uh, warranty uh, for auto and also non-auto. Um, there's uh, continues to be growth in the medical stop loss, the uh, employer medical programs. We're also doing a lot around uh, integrated aggregate programs. So essentially, it's, it's more bundling of risk. So if you think about the insurance marketplace, it's changing. Uh, I don't want to say that it, it's completely going to be, that brokerage is completely going to become a commodity. But as we, as we continue to move forward over time, there's going to be more of a commoditization around the broking of lines. Where there's going to be more value for companies is how you finance the lines. And companies are starting to look at risk more, and it's a bit of an overused term, but a bit more holistically. So rather than looking at a line of business and saying, this is what we feel comfortable taking on, it's going to be what is our total cost of risk and how much are we financing it and what have we done to protect ourselves? And then what's the ROI on the risk we're taking versus the dollars we're saving? So there's, there's, there's lines of business, there's a lot of things that are expanding, but there's just the way the structure works um, and the overall utilization of captives are changing. You've already touched on, I think, one of them regarding the um, 831B micro captives, but what do you see as the kind of biggest challenges or obstacles for captives doing business and continuing to operate in the U.S. at the moment? Probably one of the biggest challenges is direct placement taxes. Um, I wrote a piece for a publication uh, that was published back in May that, that talked about this. 
Um, you know, we saw uh, a little over a year ago in Washington State, Microsoft um, sort of brought it to the fore. And shortly after that, interestingly, uh, the North Carolina Captive Insurance Association um, published a piece that uh, essentially said the North Carolina legislatures were considering uh, passing a law that said, if your, your home state is here and you have a captive in another jurisdiction, we're not going to pursue direct placement taxes. They went the opposite way to Tennessee, for example. Yeah. So they, they didn't move forward with the legislation. But I think what it did is it, it has set up the marketplace to have sort of the, the, the organization or the states that are going to aggressively pursue the tax in the states that are going to be pro-business. And it's very soft still at this point. You know, we know about Washington. Um, so so we're, we're kind of waiting to see how that goes. But I think that that's how it's lined up. And I think if some states continue to get aggressive, we're going to see the other side develop more. Yeah, I guess as well for North Carolina, we don't need to go too specifically into this, but for North Carolina, they, their probably rationale is we want to be a good captive citizen. You know, we, we want to be a, a competitive domicile, but a friendly domicile it isn't going to go and annoy uh, other other businesses just because they um, they got their captive somewhere else or choose to be somewhere else. I, I completely agree with that. Is they want to be a good corporate or a good captive citizen, but there's actually a, a much smarter play at that, which is they're going to attract businesses there. They're going to be pro business, business friendly. So they're not just necessarily thinking, oh, I want to get your captive here. They're thinking, I want to get your corporation here. I want this to be your headquarters because the, the financial benefit of that is far greater. I mean, think about Amazon, which is starting up these operations in different locales. Okay, now where's the home state? Yeah. What's going to qualify for the home state under NARA? Well, uh, that's all we have time for uh, today, Skip. Thank you to all of our guests in episode 14. Melissa Hollingsworth of Jim Ellis Automotive, Pete Krantz from Beecher Carlson, and of course, my guest co-host, Skip Myers. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. See you next time, Captives.